Have you ever wondered why the government gets so little done? Well, today we have a special episode with the expert Jennifer Polka that dives into that question of government ineffectiveness. And we'll dive into her answer, which comes from her book called Recoding America, which is really one of the best policy books I've read in years. It helps us understand why government is failing and how to fix it. As always, let me know what you thought of the episode and stay until the end to hear her overrated and underrated. Thanks. Hello, Reese's Pieces. I'm Reese, the co-founder of Root, and welcome to The Reese Show. I believe the best way to predict the future is to build it. And so I'm interviewing pioneers on the frontier to understand what the world will look like and the secrets behind how they're building it. These are insights from the frontier. And today, I'm excited to chat with Jennifer Polka. Jen has been a force for good in civic tech for you know a decade plus, which is amazing. And she's the founder of Code for America, the U.S. Digital Service, the U.S. Digital Response, um, and was the deputy CTO under President Obama. And she just finished this awesome book titled Recoding America, Why Government is Failing in the Digital Age and How We Can Do Better. Jen, thanks for being on the show and welcome. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. Yeah, I'm excited to dive in. And, um, you know, Jen and I were just chatting about, you know, like what, you know, kind of before the show about what we want to talk about today. And I think Jen and I hit on kind of a crucial idea here, which is, although her book is kind of about, you know, it's like, why the government is failing is the first part. But the second part is like how we could do better. And so there, there is lots of optimism uh, in the air, as long as like, we kind of make it all happen. So before we get into the book, and like, all of that stuff. Jen, I actually want to start with just like you as a person and how you initially started to get into Code for America and why did you decide to like start that up and get into government and technology? Yeah, well, I certainly never thought that's where I would end up. Um, I don't even have, I don't have a tech background. I don't have a government background at all. Uh, but as people do in their 20s and 30s in San Francisco, I ended up in tech, um, you know, in the sort of like needed a job kind of way. <laughs> like, in fact, I ran the video, the game developers conference for, for many years, for eight years. Um, but coming out of that, um, I ended up working on the conference called web 2.0 when, when that was brand new and shiny, um, which was amazing and fascinating. Got to see all these, you know, as you would say, like these companies on the frontier building the future. Um, but at some point, those of us who were working on the conference and on sort of related media, trying to define the concept, were like, wait a minute, isn't the best application of these ideas in government? We're talking about participation. We're talking uh, about voice. We're talking about collective intelligence. Like, great if it can make companies money, but like, this is like really about, this really should be about making our government better. So we started working on a conference called Gov 2.0 and in going to DC and interviewing people, um, I sort of got really passionate about how technology was being built and in you know the technology that, that we're all supposed to use to interface with our government um, at all levels. And I had a, a very good friend uh, who was the chief of staff for the mayor of Tucson. And we were talking about it one day and he was like, can't you get me some of your, you know, bright tech folks that are building Twitter and Facebook and Google to work at, in Tucson city government? And my first answer was, I don't think so. <laughs> um, but our, my second answer was, what if we you know, made it like a Teach for America program where people do a year of service? Uh, 
And it that was the start of it. It, it. That's not what Code for America is today. It's changed a lot. But that was the seed of the idea that turned into something pretty important. I love that. I love how it's um, also a thing where <laughs> you weren't a government person and you weren't a tech person. You were just a person. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> and you were organizing. And it's called also a reminder for me of just like how big Web 2.0 was. It was like, and it was all about um, yeah. democratization and like pushing. <coughs> Sorry. <coughs> I got a, um, a, what is it called? A rabbit, a, a frog in my throat. Um, in case, <laughs> in your throat. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, and how at that time it was, yeah, it was all about democratization and it was Facebook and Reddit and all these ways to push stuff to the edges. And it was like, wait a second, let's use this for the real kind of participatory thing, government. Um, and so with Code for America, you started to build that up. And then you also, that's when you kind of got into the nitty gritty of like how this all might work. And then you also made, you know, USDS uh, and USDR and all, <laughs> the acronyms yeah. started to expand. So tell us about that process as you started to like build out the civic tech kind of, and build with obviously many other people, the civic tech ecosystem. Yeah. So we, we started Code for America in sort of 2010, really didn't know what we were doing, but it's probably better that way. Right. <laughs> um, and what we were doing is getting people who wanted to do a year of service working with government who had tech and design skills and putting them in groups and, and sending them into a city government at the time. And um, we did a first year in uh, uh, 2011 with three cities. And yeah, this was like a massive crash course in this intersection between government and technology and really design, right? It's not just, it's not really the coding and the coding has to be there, but it's how are you designing these interfaces to government? Um, I think in a lot of ways we got like permission to do another year because we had some big hits that year, um, particularly with the city of Austin. Um, they were dealing with the change in how kids were assigned to public schools and uh, it involved walk, uh, like a walk distance from the school. So it was like a walk zone around each school, but they didn't have any way of really expressing that um, to the parents. And they had this 17 page brochure in tiny type um, that like you could read it, but you didn't actually understand where your kid could go to school. And of course, to a tech person, this is a very simple mapping problem, right? This is not that much code. And so we were very quickly able to put up a nice site where you could type in your address and the age of your kid and whether there was any kids in another public school. And it would show you the map of, you know, what schools you could you were going to be likely to get into. And it was well designed. It looked more like, you know, Twitter than it did like a government website. And so suddenly everyone went, oh, my God. Uh, the head of Austin Public Schools said, you've changed our relationship with parents in a good way. One of the fellows said, I now believe that interfaces to government can be simple, beautiful, and easy to use. And I think that's much more common now today that people believe that. But back in 2011, it was just very uncommon to see something like that that was so easy to use and made, frankly, pretty and easy. Um, so we got, you know, we got a chance to do another year and another year. And it was in the middle, um, sort of near the end of the second year that I got a call from Todd Park, who was chief technology officer in the White House under Obama saying, come to D.C., let's let's do something similar here. Um, he had actually already started a program called the Presidential Innovation Fellows. But I, at the same time, had been going to London and meeting with the folks 
who ran the government digital service there, which was not a fellowship program. It was this, you know, thing in the center of, of, of government in the UK that was hiring at that point hundreds of brilliant technologists and designers to sort of rethink how the UK was going to relate to its people. And um, I always said to, to Todd, I, you know, what I'm, I'm really interested in is sort of replicating that. And in addition to having the fellowship program and a very long uh, story, <laughs> but, uh, you know, ended up um, despite refusing to at first because of um, my kid and location and all these things and having a, you know, nascent nonprofit, um, despite all those things, ended up going to D.C. for a year and and. Um, after persevering through many challenges, uh, the United States Digital Service um, launched, I think, uh, six weeks after I left. It was very hard to get it up and running, but I'm, I'm still just incredibly proud of the people who kept that going. And, have, you know, it's really it's thriving today. So in the course of that, also, we uh, folks over at GSA created a very similar unit called 18F. And now there's like much more of an ecosystem of, um, of organizations, both inside and outside government, not just the three I just mentioned and many more that are trying to do uh, projects in government where you have that same experience that those Boston public school parents had of, wow, this was easy. <laughs> Yeah, I love it. I love it. It's a great, and it is, and I love the same thing about like the interface to government where it's like, what is your, both what is the API, the actual programming interface, and then what's the UX interface. Um, yeah. And then as you do that and you're like, oh my God, and I love the kind of race to the top feeling of like, oh, you look at the UK and you're like, oh my God, they're doing, mm -hmm. they were learning from you guys from with like, oh, what are, what is your fellowship thing? And then you guys were learning from them around, oh, what is your governmental digital service look like? Great. Let's spin up USDS here. And then now there's 18F and then, and the, the ecosystem, it is, you know, back in the day, it was just like, you know, civic hall and some other, and now it's just like, okay, sure. great. Now there's a ton of things, which is, so we're in a much, much better um, place than we were um, back then, which is awesome. So thank I thank you for your service, as they say. Um <laughs> There's many other people who've done much more public service, which is really hard. So next, yes, make sure you always thank people who do public yeah, service. Yeah, really one year, so others really deserve the credit. Yeah, it's true. Um, and so, so now let's talk about like, so you start, you've done these things, you've worked at this intersection of tech and government. Um, why did you start to write Recoding America? So I, I, um. I had been running Code for America for 10 years when the pandemic hit. And so I'd actually already scheduled myself to, to take some time, which was, which was fortunate because I think it was very good to hand the reins off to our new CEO, Amanda Renteria. Um, but uh, I needed a break and I really felt like people kept asking me to explain, you know, why things work the way they do. Um, there's a line in the in the book where, you know, I say when when things don't, you know, when things don't work the way you think they should work, we often tend to assume that the people are bad or stupid or evil, and it's really actually just that the systems are operating according to structures and incentives that we can't see. And so I was just constantly being asked, like, why is this so bad? And why can't it be better, you know, immediately? Like, 
once Code for America did that one Boston project, couldn't wasn't that the proof that everything should change instantly? And it wasn't changing instantly, though it is changing. You know, there's constant progress. Um, and I, I wanted to help people understand that there is no quick fix, um, that we are part of the problem, um, and that we really have to take a different look at our government than we are today. You know, I think people just have assumed that we can take the government we have today, like, and move it into the cloud. Give it an app. Give it an app, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we need an app. It all needs to be in the cloud. And, like, we should use more modern programming languages and get off COBOL. <laughs> but the truth is that the government we have today, if you can, sure, you can move it to the cloud. You can port it off of COBOL. It will still be overly complex, unclear, um, overscoped, um, hard to use, like you have to really go a lot deeper than the technology that we see if you want government to work. And that involves us as citizens thinking differently about how to hold government accountable, how to hold elected officials accountable, how to interact, inter how to interact with bureaucrats and public servants um, and really just how to think we have to think differently about government. Yeah. And it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's a complex topic. And, you know, I, I think I ended up writing three times as much as got published. <laughs> um, but I hope the parts that I've chosen get at this issue of let's go deeper if we really want real change. Yeah, no. And I think it's a great, and I love the let's go deeper double click. And I have behind me here is the thinking in systems uh, book. Mm -hmm. Have you ever, have you, you've read that book? You nodded. Um, it's a, that it's all about, okay, let's double click on the thing and let's understand what are the deeper levers here and what are the things that we may not be able to see. The technology is just a symptom of these underlying problems of like how the government works. It's just at the very top of the iceberg or whatever. So tell us about what, what, why is the government failing? What are these deeper level is issues, you know? Well, you know, they say like the five whys. I feel like sometimes the book is like the nine whys or something. Um, so let's not attempt to go through all of the things. But, um, you know, I think one of the first ones we just talked about is, you know, I'll take unemployment insurance as an example of, of this. But, you know, every when it failed during in, in almost every state, it failed. It did sort of fail in absolutely every state to lesser and greater degrees um, during the pandemic. It was understandable. It had 10x the load and sometimes 20x the load that it had ever uh, had. Um, yes, uh, these systems have COBOL in them. They're not exclusively COBOL. Um, there's COBOL when you buy a plane ticket too, but it's not exclusively COBOL, right? Like the front end you're seeing uh, is written in some much more modern, you know, web-friendly language. Um, and so everyone jumped to the conclusion that that was what was wrong. And, you know, the, maybe the best way to express it is is to tell the story about the new guy. So we spent a lot of time in this strike team that was trying to help uh, unblock this over, you know, there's a backlog of claims. It was over a million claims that hadn't been paid for months, which is terrible for those people. They don't have income. <laughs> this is what this program is supposed to do. And one of my colleagues was there on site with these claims processors um, who have to deal with all of the claims that don't just go smoothly along that COBOL assembly pipeline. 
And they're trying to explain to her all these very complicated things. And one of them kept saying, well, I'm not sure about that. I'm the new guy. And eventually she stopped him and said, well, how long have you been here? And he said, 17 years. And she was sort of flummoxed for a second, but then she went around and everyone else had been there 25 years or 27 years. And at 17, you're still learning the complexities of policy, process, regulation, technology, that we have made this system be. And I don't mean the technology system. I mean, the full system is so complex that you can't really even learn it in in 17 years, which means that this program is supposed to scale up and scale down, right? Scales up when we have more unemployed people, scales down in times of low unemployment. If you can't make new claims processors and lots of your claims have to go through these trained claims processors, you by definition cannot scale up and scale down. And so it's, it's things like that that I think we fail to see. And then we realize that where did all that policy and process come from? It came primarily, not it came from the Federal Department of Labor. We can blame them if we want to. It came from our state legislators. It came from our elected officials in Washington, D.C. It came for our desire for more oversight and more audits and more requirements. That 17 years really isn't the fault of, in this case, the California Employment Development um, uh, Department. It's our fault. (laughs) We made that. And I think that starts to get at how we can unmake it. Um, We just needs to be a lot less complex. Yeah. 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 Interesting. It's... um... Yeah, person, it's a kind of like the funny uh, vice versa of that within startups where someone's like, oh, wow, like I've been here a really long time. And you're like, how long have you been here? And they're like, three years. And everybody's like, oh, my God, you you must know everything. You know? Um, like, Don't quit. You know everything. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, and so what and what I'm hearing from you, and I think I think it's right to talk about the system as a whole with like the laws and the code and whatever. And the, and the code is really just a manifestation of some of those laws that exist. It makes yeah. me think of like the frame of you know, we want a garbage collector for laws where it's like when laws aren't being used or, you know, we need to simplify them. We need to cut. So is there, is that part of the solution is that there, we have all these laws and that's, you know, all these, you know, 7,200 pay or whatever, like how, how can we take the amount of laws that exist and simple? Is that part of the solution? How should we do that? Oh, it's a hundred percent. It's necessary. Part of the solution, probably necessary, but in, insufficient. Yeah, yeah. But when, um, like when was the last time any of us asked that of our state officials, our state legislatures, our members of Congress. This is not what we elect people to do. So it just, it very rarely happens. Um, it's actually, I'll tell you, um, I found this out since I wrote the book. Um, if a new state tried to join the union tomorrow and said, great, we need to stand up our unemployment insurance systems. Where's the regulation that governs it so we know what we have to comply with? The Federal Department of Labor doesn't have that. They have, starting in 1939, the Social Security Act, and then changes that have accrued on that since then that have come from this matrix of uh, the state and federal, judicial, executive, and legislative, like all of, you know, each of those level, each, uh, those branches at each of those levels can all add things to the regulation. And it just all accretes over time. And there's no one statement of like, great, here's your 50 pages. This is what it has to do. 
um, like we really couldn't onboard a new state if we wanted to. That work, um, you know, when is the last time you heard a member of Congress yell at the Department of Labor about a simpler set of regulations? When is the last time you heard uh, a citizen at a forum with an elected official ask about something like that? Never, right? Um, but it is absolutely what needs to be done. Hmm, interesting. And so, and like many other things as well. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, to, to to check, and I love that. I love that thinking of like how easy would it be to spin up a new state or like to spin up a, like those, that's a way to like check the system. You know, can the system spin up new instances of itself? If so, oh, good. That means it's like relatively um, simple, which is likely good. Do you think I'm reminded though about like from the law perspective? I'm reminded like often from the right, the right will say things like, oh, we need a smaller government or whatever. And I remember, you know, like Trump putting up this big old, um, you know, he's he's so memeable and he had this big uh, list of regulations. And he's like, we're getting rid of all these. And so so I guess it does happen sometimes. But yeah, so is there, what is the, so, so you think it's like a thing that people should demand of their governments and a thing that... Uh, that that the government should actually be like are there are there good examples of people starting to like refactor their laws or no i haven't um yes there well there, there certainly are at at a smaller level not at that sort of let's take seven thousand pages over almost 100 years <laughs> mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. but uh what happens when you go in and try to make a service that's simple and easy to use is that you have to engage with the regulations and the policymakers, and you have to then force them to clarify themselves and say, wait, is this actually still relevant? <laughs> um, could it be updated? Could it be simplified? And oftentimes, in fact, there already was a law that simplified, it just hadn't been, you know, been used. And, and just getting clear on that, it's certainly happening um, to some degree. And, and I do want to distinguish between deregulation and regulatory reform and simplification, because you can still have safeguards in place with less confusion and complexity. Um, I'm not saying that there aren't regulations that shouldn't be, that that need, there are certainly regulations that need to come off of the books. I'd like to do that in a way that actually honors the safeguards that they were put in for in the first place. But when we're talking about either administrative burden or regulatory burden, I would say the left would call it administrative burden, the right would call it regulatory burden, but they're kind of the same thing. (laughs) What you're really talking about is with the same safeguards in place, how do we make this easier for everybody so that we can move faster, right? And like moving faster is wildly underappreciated and undervalued in government, in my view. Yes. Oh, my God. The speed thing is crazy. I was chatting with... um... Uh, the two frames on this one of them is uh, i was chatting with one of my friends who's doing who's in grad school and is doing this um evaluation of this program and he's talking about in the program it's like a 40 million dollar thing they're supposed to do all this stuff and one of the pieces of it is to plant 2000 trees and they're already in um two they're already two um two years into the process and only have two more years left and they've planted like 150 trees and i was like if we can't plant, you should be at at least 1,000 trees by now. <laughs> and that's not even counting into, you know, taking into account if we're trying to rebuild with the IRA and you make good points like this in your book too, the whole, like we're trying to greenify the whole economy, we need to be able to build more quickly. Um, and so how, so I guess beyond um, the kind of like taking the legal system and making it more um, and kind of redoing some law refactoring stuff, how else can we like build more quickly? 
Well, I think you're going at the IRA example is perfect. Like we're used to thinking like, oh, you know, change will come in the time that will come. Like we're not determining that anymore. The clock is ticking because of like physics and the environment. <laughs> like it is not our choice if we want to avoid a climate collapse when we do this thing. It has to happen now. Um, so for example, I mean, this is one of many different things, but like we need, yes, as you said, we need to greenify. To me, I think that largely in terms of the IRA is electrify, you know, our infrastructure. Um, I'll speak specifically to residential because it's a really big part of this, much bigger than people realize. I'll put in a plug for my son-in-law's book, Electrify by Saul Griffith. Um, yes, he's my son-in-law, which is hysterical. But um, we, there are so many incentives in the IRI for every one of us to have solar on our homes, to have electric car and a car charger, electric stove, making this much cheaper. But what we're not doing is making it easier. I don't know if you have solar on your house. My husband, thank God, did it because I would have it was would have driven me insane. The permitting process is very slow and very frustrating for the residents. But think about it on the government side. If suddenly they have 10 or 20 times as many people asking for a permit to put solar on their homes and an electric charger by their carport, they can't do that. And it's not, be and they're not just like the EDD. There's no way they're suddenly going to hire 10 or 10 times as many people who know how to do this, nor do they have the budget, but they shouldn't. They should simplify the process. It doesn't mean there shouldn't be safeguards. It doesn't mean that anybody can do anything on their house. It doesn't mean electricians shouldn't check this and make sure we're not having fires and stuff because batteries are dangerous. Like you do need safeguards. You do not need unnecessary process that ends up taking nine months. We don't have that time. Process simplification is what good service designers do. It's what people at Code for America do, what they do at the USDS. I mean, it is true, I will say, in Australia, where my, my son-in-law lives, you apply through a very tiny app for your solar permit, and you get it immediately. Like, you fill out a little form, and it comes back, like, 10 seconds later with, here's your permit. Um, it means they have a record of it. It means they can check, blah, blah, blah. They're still an electrician. Like, there are ways to do what we intend our permitting system to do at far greater speeds but it requires thinking through that design lens instead of through a compliance lens. Yeah, I love that. I love, yeah, the design versus compliance lens, the kind of a good, another meme that you have that's just good is like user needs, not government needs, where it's like the government yeah. needs are the compliance lens and the user needs are like, that does it work? Can I get, and you give the good example too of like COVID tests where it's like the actually yeah. covidtest.org or .gov or whatever, when it came out, it was like, you could just click the buttons and, um, and you got the test shipped to you. And, and I love that you said in it too, you're like, yes, we that could have been, instead yeah. of a two minute process, it could have been a um, 20 minute process where you put in all your healthcare info and you know check all the boxes to make sure you're doing, because in theory, maybe those safeguards should have, quote unquote, should have been there, but actually on net, it's probably better to just make it a two minute process instead of a 20 minute process to um, help people with the, and these kind of one click um, things. Are there- And, and, and there, every other field that, that that form could have asked for would have slowed it down on the back end too. And you've got public servants required to check on this or go for that. And, you know, uh, you, the, you know, the key thing is, yeah, it was amazing that it took like seven seconds to order your COVID test. What was more amazing, they just came right away. Like 
do a couple days later, they're in your inbox. That's what we need, right? It doesn't help you to have a COVID test after you just got COVID. Um, but it we have to think about what's happening after we hit submit on a form too. How much complexity are we pushing into the bureaucracy versus just like goes right through, comes out the other end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Are there, you kind of gave the Australia example of like what this might look like. And I think it was, there was kind of a nice Pew uh, research poll recently about things that US doesn't do that other governments do that we'd like to replicate. And one of them was like one click taxes where it's like, yeah. oh my God, everybody would love that. You know, that would be so great. Um, are there other governments, I'm thinking about whether it's Taiwan and their kind of weird civic tech stuff. Who yeah. does this the best? Who does government the best? That's a hard question. And and what can we learn from them? Um, the classic answer to this is Estonia, and they do it beautifully. Yeah. Um, so Estonia is actually as good as the people say, you know? <laughs> it depends on how you define good. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, Every government is different. We have different values. I mean, in terms of efficiency, it would be easy to say China does this best, but we have different values and we want different things out of our government. And I would certainly be uh, quite upset if someone interpreted my comments about speed and efficiency to mean that I wanted us to be more like China. I don't. Um, and I'm, I'm not comparing Estonia to China by any means, but Actually, Estonia and a lot of the countries that have done a great job digitizing government have a very different problem from what like the US and UK and to some degree Canada have. We can't digitize what we have. We have to simplify and then digitize or rather simplify in the process of digitizing. Um, When you are a smaller country with fewer people and not the sort of, you know, 7,000 pages of regulation that cover one minor program, um, and that's just, by the way, the regulations that cover UI, that doesn't even speak to the regulations that cover the building and buying of technology in government, which are, again, you know, regulated at the state and federal levels and cybersecurity and all those other things. it, they're going to be better at it because they don't have that legacy, um, that mess of legacy processing policy behind them. So it's not a fair comparison. Um, uh, but yes, there are certainly places that are doing better. I think the UK deserves a lot of credit. They have had some steps forward and some steps back, but I think they're currently making steps forward. Mexico's doing well. Mexico City is doing well. In the United States, Colorado, New Jersey, they have teams that were modeled after the USDS and they're doing great work. There isn't sort of like the best. What there are are different places around the country and around the world that are doing certain things well. And the key is to sort of get us all together and take the best of each, but translate it into our own context. We have our own odd form of government in some ways. Um, uh, I'm talking about federalism in particular, just can make things a little bit complicated. and we have our own set of values. So we're not going to go just borrow someone else's outfit, right? Like, but we may learn things from other countries. Yeah, I like that. I think that there's a, um, and when you say, yeah, yeah, who does what well, it's like, yeah, just like the, and I, I like the differentiation between simplification and digitization. And it makes me think of um, in the crypto world that I've worked in in various ways in the past, um, people would talk about wanting to put stuff on blockchains. It's like, well, the first step for the, like the, you know, 
uh, for um, land rights in rural Uganda is not actually the blockchain. The first step is actually to just digitize it, you know? And so it's like, yeah. you don't need yeah. to blockchainify it quite yet. You can like just digitize it to, you know, the, you know, the assets or whatever first, and then you can start to do that. So I think simplification is a good first, first piece. And I think you're right to say that there's, it's kind of an interesting combo of like you have china which is kind of more bulldozer energy while america's more vtocracy energy um yep. how do you think talking about vtocracy and stuff and and you yeah. and i are both connected to this like abundance agenda kind of um supply side progressivism thing happening how do you how does your book relate to that more general movement about just kind of like yeah abundant supply abundant housing that kind of um less vtocracy energy um, I think it is fundamentally an abundance agenda book. Um, and I didn't write it as such. Um, but when people in the abundance agenda have read it, that's sort of what they've come up with. And then sort of after the fact, I've connected it. But I do talk a lot about the ways in which um, we've set up systems as vitocracy. It's a combination of vitocracies when anybody can say no, but nobody can say yes but also weirdly the exact opposite, which is, well, it's not the exact opposite, but it, it, something that sounds like the opposite, which is um, you're, you're, you're building a program that needs to be administered through a digital service, right? Very common, right? There are a lot of stakeholders, both inside and outside government in this. And we have correctly and appropriately created a system where lots of people get to say their piece about it. But because we don't have that design frame, or in the book I talk about the product management frame, product management being distinct from product management. Project management is the art of getting things done. Product management is the art of deciding what to do in the first place. If you're not deciding what to do, you're just doing everything that everyone says to do. And uh, that is actually literally how government technology product projects are put together is everybody throws their requirements in. Nobody really prioritizes them. And certainly no one says, oh, we're not doing that. Um, they, they go to whoever they need to go to get money, legislator, whatever, get an appropriation and say, look how big this is. We need a billion dollars. And they create something that is dead in, from the start because it's so overscoped. It's such a mega project. Um, that it is simply doomed to fail. It's a, what we would, I call in the book a concrete boat. Like, a lot in it, real heavy, not going to float. <laughs> um, and I guess the, you know, what we need is a system where someone can say, I hear all of these things that people think are needed. They're not, but they're also not expressed as things that are needed. They're expressed as requirements. Somebody else might need them. And say, let's set these aside and actually understand what needs does this need to fulfill for what people? Let me understand the context of those, pe those people and those needs and build something that works for them. That will probably end up fulfilling some of the requirements that would have gone in the massive requirements death march um, process, but it'll fulfill the ones you actually needed and the other ones you really didn't. And it will make software and services and government that actually works. And in order to do that, you have to empower somebody to say, I'm making a choice here. Um, so in, in, in a weird way, that person, you know, is getting a veto over other folks, but not everybody gets that veto. 
And you, yeah. you have to make people believe that that person who I'll call a product manager or a product owner, but, you know, in other contexts, it could be something else, right? In, in housing, it could be the person who's deciding like, no, we are going to actually green light this project, right? Um, that person has to be really good at making everybody feel heard in a way that's not like, I see your requirement and it's in the requirements doc, but instead I hear what you're saying and I'm going to help you get what you want, but not literally. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. I think I love that as a, um, it's a funny, I mean, you're hitting on lots of really interesting things there. One of them is, um, and in the book, you talk about this in a great way, the, the, the like kind of requirements culture and like process culture versus outcome culture, where it's like, yeah. you know, it's just like, you know, the people, what they, the way that these systems are constructed, the incentives for all the individuals within them is to just like, oh, I did the requirements. I did the process correct or whatever. It's like, but what about the outcomes? <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. and if that you have this, like uh, people are doing lots of signaling, um, but then the actual impact doesn't really exist, um, which is tough. And then the, the we veto should recognize that when we as citizens call for greater oversight of something, it's the right instinct when something fails, what went wrong, we should ask. But what we're really invoking at that point is a whole uh, machinery that that spins up to look again at process. Committee and energy, you know, civil yeah. servants much less uh, able to do the right thing even if it's, you know, that'll get the outcome. <laughs> yes. So yes. We, are, we are creating more risk aversion and making our government less capable of meeting our needs when we call for oversight in the model that currently exists. Yeah, exactly. It's like, hey, what? Oh, this thing didn't happen exactly correct. Great. Let's make some committees to double check why that didn't happen. And then in, in the future, there'll also be committees. And if you do anything that's wrong, even if it was with the, the user in mind, with the citizen in mind, sorry, you know, like you, you should have yeah. run the process. Uh, and I, I like what you're saying about like pushing the veto points towards the um, edges of the system, you know, towards um, mm -hmm. instead of at the begin at the middle where it's like, look, there is it is OK and it is correct for there to be some kind of over, you know, overarching thing that says, hey, we are going to um, electrify our economy. And so we're going to put four hundred billion dollars into that. And we're, and then you kind of push and then you just have and then you kind of just trust the people on the ground. And then so like pushing all the money and the impact and stuff like down the downstream seems like um a good thing. I, I have a question for you, actually, which is, um, or another kind of related comment, which is part of this issue seems to be that there are, you know, it, it, it makes me think about this SVB stuff and monetary policy versus fiscal policy, and that um, essentially we have a lot of gridlock in government, and so you don't get that much fiscal policy, you don't get that many stimulus-looking things, you get a lot more monetary policy, which is just like a fire hose of money, and it gets pushed into the yeah. stock market, it makes the rich richer, it has this, but it's only, but because we have such a vitocracy at the congressional level, we're not able to like push as much money into infrastructure and things like that. Instead, what we just do is just go, oh man, this is kind of an issue. Let's just like funnel money through like the, the money printer. Um, and so how I think about that with this, it's like, how can we, um, it feels like policymakers have this hammer, which is just like, we know how to craft tons of like really long policy briefs and like push that down. And then we don't really deal with the implementation. Is there a different version of reality where somehow we like care more about the implementation or the outcomes, you know? Yeah, and I think it's really simple. We care more about the implementation and the outcomes. Six, um, six, six. It's, 
it's going to be very hard to change because elected officials do what they get reelected on. And we don't hold them accountable for that. We hold them accountable for passing laws that seem to match our values. The problem is, if you don't follow on the implementation, it very often has the opposite effect of what you intended and doesn't at all uphold your values. Um, this, this happens over and over again. Um, yeah, I, I just... Uh, you know, I was just on the phone with someone who said there's 2,700 bills that the California state legislature has this cycle. And he said, you know, it's just really hard to keep track of all of them. And I was like, you know what we should do? Legislate less and implement more. All of us. <laughs> um, and I think, that, again, not to repeat it at Horsebrook, but that is particularly true at the federal level, which, of course, rolls down to the state and local level of the last three giant bills that Congress put through, CHIPS, infrastructure, and IRA. And again, I'll come back to the IRA because I would like us to actually avoid a climate collapse. This is our only hope. Activists out there who are like, well, it wasn't that good enough. Like, let's keep working on legislative wins are, I'm sadly dismayed that they are thinking that way because what we should all be doing if we care about climate is in helping implement that, which has so many little pieces all over our economy, uh, our state and local government, our activists, like everybody should be playing a role and nobody's envisioning themselves as change agents in implementation. They, we only have this notion of ourselves as change agents by getting the policy passed. Yeah. Um, all that money it's not money. Like people don't understand that money is there if we draw it down. Like if you decide you're going to put solar on your house and get an electric car, you'll draw that money down. Otherwise, it just never gets spent. Yeah, yeah. And then we continue to burn fossil fuels at the rate that we are. Yeah. Bad, bad news bears. I love, yeah, legislate less, implement more. And, um, yeah, we just we, we got kind of sucked into as a society the kind of oh, and it's and it's partially a result of the internet and partially other things as well. But like you know, you get what you get points for, and you either get points in the governmental system for abi abiding by the procedure, and you get points in the political system for making dunkable um, uh, Twitter, you know, like little like clips, you know, and what we, no one gets points for is doing um, you know the the kind of the building work and the operational work. So. Um, operations work good. In the last kind of couple minutes here, I want to ask uh, a couple like kind of like more general questions, which are one: What do you? Um, so if, if there's um, an ambitious frontier person who is looking to get involved with technology and make government better, how? What? Uh, what is one piece of advice you'd have for them? Um, maybe this is the opposite of ambitious in some people's minds, but um, I would always encourage folks, whether they have a tech background or not, to do a tour of duty inside government. You will come out of it so much smarter about how the world actually works than you are now. Even if you think you totally understand how the world works, if you've never worked inside a government bureaucracy, I realize that companies have bureaucracies and they have some similar, lots of similar dynamics. But if you've never worked inside a government bureaucracy, don't end your career without doing that. You will thank me, I promise. You'll also want to kill me, but that's okay. I'll take both. Um, I think beyond that, um, you know, it's, you know, of course, engage in politics because it matters. But 
think about politics as a way we get the whole thing done, not just the legislation passed, and show up that way in whatever way you show up in your political um, system. I love that. Yeah, it's um, to a to do a tour of duty. And I think that's a great. It's like, oh, you might do like a little, you know two years at this startup, or whatever. It's like also just like do a year at um, do a year or two in government and be like, okay, cool, what's happening? And it's also there's also there's obviously a tons of amazing cool projects that are happening as well. And so not only do you get to see the dysfunction, but you get to see the function as well and create some of the function. And then you, your second piece, I think, is really important, which is see politics as the whole process and like driving outcomes. How, what does that outcome-driven process look like? Um, okay, what? Um, let's do a couple um, overrated and underrated. So I'm just gonna say a thing, and then you'll say, you know, whether it's overrated, or underrated, and then like a sentence on why, roughly. Um, do you think that governmental dysfunction is that overrated or underrated? Um. I'm going to say underrated. Yeah, um, we just, I think we, we think about it with outrage, which is why I would say overrated. Um, but we don't actually spend time on it. Um, we just want to be outraged and moved on. So underrated so that we will all spend more time actually um, grappling with it. I love that. Yeah. We look at it and we're just like, oh, that's a bad thing. Next, next tweet versus like, oh my God, if you actually look at and read your book, it's like you get to see all the like outcomes that are not occurring. And so, yeah, so we should uh, spend more time on that. Um, what do you think about the, like the, the kind of causal impact of the two party system on government dysfunction? Is that overrated or underrated? Okay. I'm going to go with overrated there. Um, not because it's not true. It is absolutely dysfunctional. And there are a lot of smart people working on ways to improve it and reduce the negative impacts of it. But relative to some of the things I talk about in my book, these, these you know, profoundly skewed um, incentives for public servants, for instance, um, it just gets far, far, far more attention. So I'd like to balance that out by calling that one uh, overrated. Yeah, that makes sense. Under, wait, what did I say? Overrated. Yeah. <laughs> overrated. Yeah. The causal impact, like the two party system's not good, but it's like also that just like the government as a whole doesn't, the incentives are bad. So like, let's, let's think more about that. Um, one final one is, do you think, um, uh, the abundance agenda or supply side progressivism, is that overrated or underrated? I'm a big fan. Uh, uh, I'd like to see it get a ton more attention. Um, I think it provides a framework that's incredibly hopeful. Like once you see through those eyes, you see things that you can do differently. Um, definitely going with underrated. Yeah, cool. Yeah, I agree. It's like it's just kind of like a raise the bar energy where it's like, no, look, things can be amazing and we can actually move towards that amazing place. And like, let's do it. Like there's nothing that is stopping us. And so like, let's make it happen. Um, beautiful. Well, thank you so much for coming on today, Jen. And I think as for listeners, if you want to check out the book, uh, it's recodingamerica.us. That's like the place to find it. Um, and if you want to check out Jen, you can go to, I love your Twitter um, name, by the way. It's polka dot but polka dot so p-a-h-l-k-a-d-o-t at twitter uh would you like to say anything else to the listeners by the way uh i guess i'd end by uh just saying that like all this is really in the end up to us right like government and software are both made by people so we get to decide how it works it's just a lot of work so i look forward to Lots of people diving into this in the coming years. 
Beautiful. Yeah, there will be by 2030, it will be good. And by 2050, it will be great. And so we're excited for that uh, good government future. Um, well, thank you so much, Jen. And thank you so much, listeners, for coming. Goodbye, everybody. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening today. If you like the show, please give us a five-star podcast review or subscribe on YouTube. And if you'd like to chat about this episode with a community of amazing, smart, ambitious, divergent people, come on by and join our Discord. You can find it at root.co. That's R-O-O-T-E dot co. And then finally, if you'd like to contribute to these ideas being shared more widely in society, you can support the podcast production team at patreon.com slash Landmark. That's patreon.com slash R-H-Y-S-L-I-N-D-M-A-R-K. Thanks, and see you here for the next episode. Bye.